Hey, so welcome to the Elixir Roundtable brought to you by Dockyard. I'm Nathan Long. I'm a senior software engineer at Dockyard. I'm Mike. Uh, Mike Benz, also <laughs> senior software engineer at Dockyard. I'm Brian Carterell. I'm the founder of Dockyard. So uh, we're kind of trying something new here. And um, today I thought it would be fun to talk about, uh, and easy for me to talk about a blog post that I just published called on, on the Dockyard blog called Elixir is Safe. Um, it was kind of this aha moment for me. Um, so this past week, I think it was, one of our coworkers shared an article that was on the GitHub blog, which uh, prompted a discussion. And it was about a, uh, it was called how we found and fixed a rare race condition in our session handling. Um, did you guys uh, get a chance to read the GitHub article? Yeah, I brought, I saw it on Hacker News. I think I skimmed through it. Yeah. yeah. It's it's pretty interesting. Um, basically, they did some work in a background thread. They're, they're using Ruby, Ruby on Rails uh, to run GitHub. Mostly. Still? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and they did some work in a background thread, and there's like this very specific set of events that could happen where one user would be logged in as another user. Like one person got a response back, and it was like, yeah, I remember. I remember it was sometime a few days before that blog post where my session was killed. I think everyone's sessions were killed, and that was part of the post, right? They had to white butter yeah. sessions. Yeah, yeah, everybody was logged out. So, yeah, uh, that's a horrible bug. Um, and the thing that struck me about it was, I mean, GitHub has a really solid engineering team. I mean, I, I don't want to diss them at all. Like, they're they're obviously really smart people, and you could tell from the the description of how they went about tracking this down that it was not easy to track it down. <laughs> um, yeah. And and like I was even thinking I, like not many companies could have tracked it down to be honest. So I wonder if um, this is still a case, but I know for a period of time, I think it was around the Rails three. Uh, uh, when Rails 3 came out, GitHub was maintaining its own separate version of Rails for GitHub Core. And I know that they were would um, periodically like merge in patches that were happening on the main uh, uh, Rails repo. I don't know if that's still the case or not. And it'd be interesting to know if it is. Like if they're if they're going out there and saying, hey, we had this problem with you know, regular standard Ruby and regular standard Rails, that's one thing. But for them to, you know, concede and say, hey, we have this like forked version of everything and we ran into this problem, that makes it a more interesting uh, situation. I remember I remember hearing about them having their own version. I feel like they went on mainstream Rails at some point after contributing okay. a bunch of stuff. But they did mention in this post that they had to, that they forked uh, Unicorn because of this bug that they ran into where Unicorn was, uh, part of the problem was there was an ENV object that was getting sh like reused, just cleared out between requests, and that, that mutable data was part of the one of the ingredients in this bug. Mm -hmm. um, but that they're also contributing that patch upstream, so presumably they'll be back on the main line again. Um, but they were talking like they, they talked about some of the stuff they went through, like they were reviewing request audit logs, and they could see that like the where the session was shared and how it went through their load balancing tier and that it showed you know like these two requests happened in the same process and just like most companies don't have that kind of <laughs> that kind of logging to track yeah. that down you know that's that's hard um well, i imagine the number of times they've probably had denial of service attacks against them they've had to build up like this you know huge ecosystem of uh audit logging and just metrics and stuff to track things yeah, and I don't want to present Elixir. I hope, hopefully, it doesn't come across in the article that Elixir is a panacea. I mean, if you're running a GitHub scale, you're going to have some tricky stuff to deal with, no matter what you're using. Mm. But it, it's it kind of clicked for me that like what they dealt with in this particular bug illuminates part of why Elixir's concurrency model is just so good. <laughs> that that the specific thing that happened there was based on immutable data and the fact that they're having to use multiple threads to Presumably, they're they're doing that for performance, and you know, threads are not isolated in Ruby or or in any language. So, it just kind of it clicked for me that the same thing that the same reason that most of us are using a garbage collected language because we don't want to deal with the kind of memory bugs that can happen in C. This is what Elixir gives you for concurrency. You know, there's a whole class of bugs that you don't have to deal with, like 
you just this stuff can't happen. You can't. There's no mutable data, and there's no. You have these shared nothing processes. Like Joe Armstrong had this great analogy of like when two people are talking, <laughs> you know, I can't reach into your brain and mess with your thoughts, and you can't do that to me. Um, Not yet. Yeah. I think I think Elon Musk is working on that. Right now. <laughs> okay, that's terrifying. <laughs> Um, you know, all we can do is pass messages, and so that's that's how we want our our processes to work. Um, but I think in too that there's a major just benefit from not having to even think about that anymore, right? Like you can then reallocate that part of your brain and all like your brain power to working on domain problems rather than having to worry about edge case type stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, I mean, frankly, I'm I'm intimidated by languages like C. I mean, I'm not intimidated by Rust, even though Rust is it has a pretty steep learning curve. But like, I know that if I write something in it, it's not going to be second like shoot me in the foot, you know. Um, and, uh, and and you know, garbage collection is another way of dealing with that memory stuff. But um, you know, when, when you're working in a language like Ruby or really pretty much any language other than the Beam. You've, you, your your concurrency primitives are OS level processes or threads. That's just that's all you have to work with. Um, I actually went back. I remembered vaguely <laughs> long ago. It turned out to be 2015. An episode on the Ruby Rogues podcast mm -hmm. where they interviewed Mike Perham, who uh, created the Sidekick library, and he was talking about how um, the reason he created that was because the existing background job libraries were using OS level threads for back for each job. And it was just massively inefficient. And he was like, we can do better than this. <laughs> so he wanted to do something with threads and that gave him this massive performance boost. The way I remembered it was he dealt with a lot of tricky stuff. It turned out he actually had done this a few times before at different places. And he was like, I don't want to deal with threads <laughs> directly. So he ended up using uh, Celluloid, which implements an actor library an, or an actor model in Ruby. Um, but, I've always wondered about that, though. Like, how how trustworthy are actor model implementations in languages like Ruby? Yeah, and I have not used them directly. It was it was kind of funny going back to this episode because in 2015, I remember hearing that episode, but I didn't understand what an actor model was at that time, right. and I was just like, okay. <laughs> I tried to follow along the best I could, and this time it was like, oh, now I get it. That makes sense. Each thread is an actor. They they pass messages, um, and um. But, but but yeah, like uh, Jessica Kerr was on the episode too. She was saying, yeah, she's done stuff like this with actor models in Scala, but they always had to be really careful not to pass mutable data around between their actors because it sounds like you just really don't have those guarantees. Um, right. I don't know how that exactly how that works uh, with Celluloid. Um, and I also heard, heard that Ruby is, is adding something called Raptors, which is supposed to be a Ruby implementation of actors. But then like, you have to be careful to write your code a certain way. You it doesn't work with all the all existing libraries and, and it's like I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure how that's gonna go. I I mean we could probably dedicate a whole episode to because I think that the I know Nathan, you were in, in the Ruby community for a while. Mike, were you doing Ruby prior to this? Prior to Elixir? No, no I was you actually are? I went from, from Java, I came from Java. Oh, okay. All right. I mean the whole kind of like evolution evolution of Ruby since I have stopped working in it. Um, it's a bit odd to me because it, it it feel and I'm gonna. This is uh, I'm not gonna segue into my thing at the moment, but I'm gonna touch on this when when I do. Um, it kind of feels like they're chasing trends to a certain degree. Um, I I do watch like the um, uh, kind of like the RubyConf keynotes and the uh, you know every Christmas when they put out the new version of it and see what they've added. But I mean, they're trying to force in a type system when I understand, or maybe they've already done that at this point. It seems like every version is a new garbage collector. And the, I had not heard about this Raptor actor based thing that they're putting in there, but I don't know it. Maybe there are good excellent like reasons for it, for performance and all this, but it kind of feels like they're, getting away from like their core mission, you know, a simple scripting scripting language. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess I feel kind of two ways about it. Like one, it feels a little dubious to me, but at the same time, I don't know, we'll see. Maybe it'll work out well. Like yeah. competition I mean, I hope it does. Is, 
Yeah, it comp be, uh, competition between languages is good for everybody, or at least you yeah. know, good for all, all programming, uh, all programmers. So yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. But I think the fundamental thing, it, it seems like if you're if actually you're, add on to that for a second. I think that if if we see a benefit from it, hopefully we see more people able to transition over to Elixir because they understand like actors and all those things at that point. Yeah, yeah. But if your if your VM doesn't build in the, these guarantees like the Beam does, where no. data is immutable, you cannot mutate a piece of data with right. somebody else is using, and and you can't you can't mess with the memory in another process. Like that's built into the VM. You just can't screw that up. I don't know that Scala or Ruby or anything else is you know Akka and and Java can, can. I don't. I haven't used any of those. <laughs> but as far as I understand, they don't give you those same kind of guarantees. Yeah, they're, they're kind of a, a half step into it, teaching you the concepts, even though the underlying technology isn't, isn't, doesn't have the, the solid uh, aspect of, uh, of, you know, the beam, they're teaching you the concepts. So then, you know, like Brian said, you can transfer, you can then, it would make it easier to then transfer over. You learn, learn, learn the, uh, the concept in Ruby and then realize, oh, this is what Elixir is doing, but it, it's actually going to be much, much more safe. Yeah. And and the the other thing that we that we get in um, in Elixir is that the, the the really lightweight processes. I mean, you don't have to have, mm. you know, the like what they were describing with celluloid. Each actor was a thread, but threads are still pretty heavy compared to processes in Elixir. And in Ruby, uh, as far as I know, they still have the global interpreter lock. So you can do concurrent threads where you know one of them is waiting on IO and another one can make progress and actually execute Ruby code, but you can't execute Ruby code in more than one thread at a time. Uh, whereas that's not a problem in Elixir. You spin off your processes, they all execute parallel. You know, as, as many processes, as many processors, CPUs as you have available, that's that's your parallel. How do they how do they manage garbage collection on that? Uh, on the Ruby side for it, then is it one global collector or do all these threads from the Raptor or whatever they're going to be doing have their own GC? I do not know that. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. That was one of the things that really drew me into Elixir at the beginning. Um, and I think it was early in Dave Thomas's Prague Prog book where he discussed that. Like that was like one of my early like aha moments. Like, oh, now I understand why it's so fast because it's not having to stop the world all the time like it barely stops that you know each thread has such a small memory footprint for each process rather in Elixir has such a small memory footprint it always stays nice and fast um i mean that that i feel like i feel like at times those that have been doing elixir for a few years kind of get tired of telling these value propositions over and over again but we tend to forget that there are always people that are looking and evaluating the language for the first time and they may not you know, because these things aren't being really highlighted anymore, uh, they may be going, uh, may not be getting the attention that they should from those outside the ecosystem. Yeah, I think yeah. With the, uh, you know, the 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 part the Java project, the main Java project that I worked on uh, before Elixir was uh, document processing. We 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 take documents and and you know text files or or Word documents, PDFs. And, and convert them to images to throw them up on the screen in a, in a uh, document viewer. And we, you know, we wanted to speed this up and run do background processing so that when you, you know you click the document that was there because it had already been run. And I remember, you know, we we on on the the beefiest university. It was for uh, admissions uh, uh, at universities, and the the biggest the biggest client that we had that had the, had the biggest system had sixteen concurrent threads going um and you know when, once we spun up to that you know the the it, it we ran into all sorts of just things things blocking each other uh and and like you said the, the garbage collection was just a nightmare because it would just pause everything and then you know someone that's trying to get if we're trying to get you know a, a less than half a second uh from click to seeing a document well if the entire vm's frozen um you know that's going to affect everyone else so yeah, it's 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 a it's a huge problem, and uh, yeah, like you said, Elixir just it isn't a problem. Yeah, I think I think that an aspect of this that I think is really interesting is is just the preventing you from making mistakes. You know, like you can write 
memory safe code in C, but it's the, but the solution is be really really careful, <laughs> you know, like that's what they'll tell you, like just be really careful, and and that's not a great solution. And you can write good threading threaded code in Ruby or whatever, but you just have to be really really careful. And if you screw something up, you're in for a bad time. And like we just don't have to be that smart <laughs> when we're using Elixir, you know. Just a lot, like you said, there's a lot less to think about. You know, like that's yeah, yeah. a whole bunch of stuff that that isn't going to go wrong. That gets into training too. Is is how much you know? If you're if you're trying to train someone up in C, well, you first have to teach them how to allocate memory and not not mess it up. And then you have to get they need to be an expert in that before they're really you know able to push code. And you know, if you want to be running writing thread multi-threaded stuff in Java, well, you got to you got to learn all the different ways you can mess this up and and all the things to avoid. Um, yeah. Whereas in Elixir, you just you dive right in. You just start writing what your your business logic. Uh, not that. not only all that. I mean, part of the programming model is to incorporate crashing into it, right? And so, like in other languages, you're writing all of this edge case conditional code in order to uh, you know anticipate what could go wrong. In Elixir, you don't care. I mean, you just let it go, let it get back to a good state, and carry on. And that is such a you know uh, a weight off of the shoulders of the of the engineering team or the engineer um, that's on the project. They, like I said at the beginning, they could focus on you know, domain value back to the customer. Um, and uh, it's a um, I think that I mean there's always I think whenever I have a conversation with anybody, it always devolves into like an elixir adoption conversation. But there's so many different things that can, you know, speak to the values of Elixir. Um, it can almost feel a bit overwhelming. Or can I, for those that aren't doing Elixir, it can also probably feel like, you know, like car sales meeting, right? Like we're promising the world and like it's all these good things. And apparently not. It can't be that good. There's no way it can be that easy. But it, in many cases, it is. Yeah. And there, there's. Well, now I'm picturing Brian, uh, the dentist, you know, <laughs> asking asking what, what what software they're uh, they're running. Yeah. Hey, what's Are this? Are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I leave that up to the business developers. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I think, um, and and like you're talking about the the error. The fault, fault tolerance, error isolation, that's really what motivated the initial design of the beam was they weren't so much thinking about concurrency as just like if one phone <laughs> conversation blows up on this telephone switch, we don't want, you know, the call to 911 to also go down because we yeah. had a fault. We had a problem in our like conferencing conference call code or something. Mm -hmm. um, but we have the same kinds of concerns now with web processes, you know, web requests. If one re web request blows up, we don't want all the other web requests or or web sockets or whatever to go down. And so it it has ended up transferring over really well. And I mean, we do we do rescue errors. If I mean, if there's something that you know can go wrong and you know a good way to handle it, then you write that code. Yeah, but, but that's more of that's more of like kind of like a uh, a programming flow. Thing than anything else, right? Like you're like you know that the API of said library or the API you wrote is going to raise a particular error and you cache that, or it's going to return like an error tuple and you match on that. I mean, those aren't necessarily things that you're working around. It's more things that you're incorporating into your code. Yeah, it's the truly exceptional cases where I didn't expect this to happen. That you know, let it crash is great for. Um, yeah, I, I I had a blog post a, a while back about writing a, a lullaby <laughs> player with nerves, and one of the things that that happened was uh, there was there was a there was a part of my code that had to like wait on the sound card to be ready. I for, I'm forgetting the exact details now, but at some point as it's booting up, there would be a process that would try to do something too soon, and it would actually crash. But then it would get restarted. And I didn't even notice that was happening for a long time. And I was like, oh, okay, that, you know, that, there was fault tolerance, just picking right back up and pick, starting that process again until it worked. Um, that's that's a really neat thing to see. But I hadn't thought about did your did your baby appreciate the fault tolerance built into the lullaby? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The self healing system. Yes. Daddy, thanks for the self healing lullaby player. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> Daddy, tell me about the actor model again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Put me right to sleep. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, so bringing back to this this post, I mean, I think, I think the part I hadn't considered was just this security kind of angle. Um, you know the idea that that there's a security benefit to writing our code this way, where we don't we're not dealing with yeah. all the mutable state across threads and all this stuff. Um, it's really neat to see that a team as smart as GitHub can get it wrong, and we just don't have to worry about it. So when I um, I said I skimmed the article, I like I really skimmed it like fast. And so this is I guess a question about the nature of the article. Was this an exploit they discovered, or was this just something that there was a mistake? that was out there in the wild. It was just a mistake. And they had a report from, I think, maybe two different users saying that they saw this okay. happen. And they were like, well, it's from everything we can tell, it would be pretty rare that this would happen. But we can't know for sure how many times it's happened. So that's why yeah. after they fixed the bug, they logged everybody out. Um, so I, as far as as far as I know, nobody exploited it. But it's, you know, it's not something you want to mess around with. Like, all of a sudden, somebody's got access to the wrong GitHub repos. Um, Oh yeah, pretty serious. So I mean, their their debugging process, like they 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 talked a lot about, like this was a massive coordination between all these different areas and expertise and everything. And like, boy, that's it's impressive, but it's hard. And and um, you know, there's a lot of pain you can avoid if you don't have to use that kind of uh, threading model. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like I mentioned in the blog post, I didn't go into it, but you can still write concurrency bugs in Elixir if you do something like have two different pro uh, processes read from a database, they each create an update, and then they both write back. You know, you could lose a, an increment or something, but you just, so you still have to be cognizant of atomic updates and stuff like mm -hmm. that. But yeah, there, I mean, a good, I was, I've been thinking about during this, like interesting topics for future shows too. And I thought one would be, you know, things we wish were an Elixir. And another one could be like stupid things that break Elixir like quickly or or Phoenix quickly. And um, one thing that I'm thinking about is uh, the symbols table, like filling that up very quickly and you know, pretty much giving yourself a denial of service on your Phoenix application. And that's one area that I, I think that you know, people don't really, it's not, it's not so much to do with what you're referring to. Sorry, my brain's going off in a different direction. But I was thinking like simple things that can, you know, mess up your, give you a bad time. Yeah, yeah. And then that's a really good point because I think that also is, is something I wanted to mention with respect to Elixir processes is they are, so they're lighter weight than threads. They're more concurrent than threads in languages like Ruby where you have the gill. Um, but they are not quite as isolated as operating system processes. Because like you're saying, if you if you allocate too many atoms, if you're just like, if you know, if, if every string that comes in you make an atom out of it, then you're gonna you're gonna end up eating up all the memory and the whole the whole um, the whole node, the whole uh, OS process for the beam, and you actually could crash all yeah. of the processes that way. Hmm. So for those that don't know, symbols don't get garbage collected. Yeah. So if you're if you're interpolating your strings into symbols for whatever reason, and those are exposed to like user data that's coming in over requests. Someone can figure that out and just start spamming your system with like more and more strings and then crash your system. Yeah, symbols meaning atoms. Atoms, sorry, yeah. We were talking about Ruby, my brain's in Ruby world, sorry, atoms. <laughs> yes, yeah. The same problem exists in Ruby though. Yeah, uh, I, although I think they actually ended up fixing that in Ruby at some point. They, they actually, I think they do garbage collect symbols at this point. Oh, really? Because I thought the whole point of symbols was for performance reasons. I could be wrong. Um, I, I, I don't, it could have happened in Ruby. I just don't know. Internally, it's just they converted to a number, right? It's, it's... They are they're strings, I believe, internally. It's just that they're like that particular. I mean, Luke would probably know uh, much better, but I believe that they're just kept in a table. And because when they get uh, allocated upon instantiation, the next time they're just looked up rather than uh, instantiated again. And so you don't have to deal with the cost overhead, even though it's tiny, the cost overhead, and then they just never get collected. Yeah, they definitely don't get collected in, in the beam. And so you, you can definitely get 
you know, get into into trouble that way. And there's other things you can yeah. do that can crash the whole VM, but it's pretty it's pretty hard to do. <laughs> yeah, I think that list is pretty short. Um, That'd be an interesting contest. Who can crash the beam in the most interesting way? <laughs> that would be. <laughs> this is the next Phoenix frenzy ground. Yeah. yeah. Uh, like I, uh, mine was uh, I was doing a, a a board game, and I am trying to I was trying to write the AI to to walk the tree for min maxing, and it you know it got up to what two million threads because i was i was task asyncing it was a horribly inefficient <laughs> design but it would you know two through like five levels down it just, the whole thing blew up and, and yeah so was this the um Fun. the nx game that you're doing uh so i i took a pass at trying to upgrade that into to nx it's a it's a it's something i wrote i wrote it like four or five years ago because it's like uh, a physical yeah. board game right what was yeah it? yeah uh mancala yeah, it's yeah, a, it's yeah. A simple, simple board game, but, but yeah, yeah. That my my like I said, my initial one was you know just task that async, but it did it at every level of the. So it was trying to walk the entire tree, and so like I said, it's so you had tasks spawning, tasks spawning, tasks. Yeah, yeah it was one. It was. I it was. I think that's called a, that's yeah. called a fork, fork bomb, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was. It was a mess, but that's yeah. a good one. Yeah, so you can fork bomb yourself. Uh, I mean, but you, but like that's pretty much the only, only situation where you're gonna create too many processes for the beam. I mean, generally speaking, you can just create processes and not think about it. Yeah, we could we could talk more about those kinds of things uh, on another episode. I uh, think. Or you just get more memory for your computer. Come on, Mike. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, you can you can break anything. You just have to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Move but, on to the next topic. Sure. Uh, Mike, you want to go? No, oh, I, you're shaking I, your head. I, yeah, no, no <laughs> not was, me, not me, I, not me. I'm I'm here for the conversation. I didn't actually bring a, a topic this time. Okay, I got I got a topic then. Um, all right, so I've been doing Swift for the past couple of weeks, and this is related to Elixir, but I'm going to uh, make a Maya culpa. For the past few, past few years, I've been uh, uh, nagging Jose and saying on various podcasts and probably on stages at conferences <laughs> that we want a strong type system in Elixir. And after doing Swift for the past few weeks, I am completely uh pulling back every request i've made for a type system ever i've done strongly typed languages in the past but since i you know did ruby 10 years ago and elixir and you know i don't know what the hell javascript is but it's definitely not strongly typed typescript is but um uh, i've been so far into like the weekly type languages uh going back to it is just um it feels like unnecessary overhead. And I think part of that is due to um, a couple of things. Number one, Elixir has a set limited number of types, right? And so pretty much anything you want to represent is represented by a just a few types. Like it's not like you have a you have a date struct or whatever it is in Elixir, but it's really just a tuple, like you know, down underneath. Um, you have maps that are you know, pretty simple, you have strings, integers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, whereas in Swift, I mean, it's uh, it's a whole bunch of stuff, but then they have what feel like a lot of workarounds integrated into the language in order to uh, get things done. And so there are types called like any, any uh, hashable, any object, any et cetera, et cetera, any collectible um, that can then essentially match, type match up against anything, but then uh if you're dealing with like if you have json data coming in right and you're parsing the json data um the json data isn't necessarily going to conform to strict's uh, to swift's desire to keep everything like every uh value within an array isn't always going to be an integer or a string it's, you know sometimes it can be mixed um especially if you don't have control over that service that you're requesting data from and so uh, it just it feels like a lot of hoops you're jumping through in order to co to uh, accommodate it. And Elixir's uh, pattern matching system, I think gets you most of what you want from a type system anyway. 
you know, there's there's uh, dialyzer, but I think dialyzer's real value is only in documentation, not so much in practicality. I know that you can run dialyzer, but I've never had much success with it as a uh, as a specification uh, kind of guide. Um, but yeah, I uh, uh, I'm kind of stuck in Swift world right now, and and I think part of it too is I'm actually porting over some Elixir code into Swift. And so I'm, I'm not exactly writing it in the most idiomatic uh, Swift fashion. I'm kind of writing it in a cross between um, Swift, like Swift's object model, and then some F functional programming-ish type things, just so that, because it works in Elixir and moving it over to Swift with my limited Swift knowledge, I'm essentially just kind of taking the test data on the Elixir side and then copying the implementation. Um, and so hopefully in the future, someone that has better Swift knowledge can rewrite this in a more idiomatic Swift fashion, but it's, it's not going to be me because <laughs> I'm going to get this early part done and, you know, hopefully pass it along. Um, and so I, I actually, uh, texted Jose yesterday and I told him, I'm sorry for ever wanting a type system in <laughs> Elixir and he just laughed. Um, so this is my uh, my official my culpa. I will no longer request a type system in Elixir as the things I want there. I've changed my I changed my request though. I want a functional first class debugger in Elixir. <laughs> and so the uh, the Erlang debugger that's there, like it's like int i and i or whatever, um, and then kind of latch onto a module. Uh, it'd be really nice if there was a way that and maybe this already exists, I just don't know about it, but if it was integrated into VS Code, it could use like VS Code's uh, breakpoint debugging system, like it's, you know, its own test, uh, testing um, hooks or whatever, however they, however VS Code works where it can then, you know, talk to the language server in order to uh, facilitate um, uh, the debugging, it'd be really nice. I The, the, the debugger for, the Erlang debugger is okay if you're more accustomed to seeing Erlang code, but if you're not, then it, I, I don't know what was going through their mind when they decided how they were going to eliminate strings when developing Erlang. Like those, like less and less than greater than greater than surrounding the, um, surrounding the binary statements. Like my brain just goes haywire when I see that. Um, but uh, I don't know. What are what are your thoughts on on that? Because I know that Jose for a while was talking about an inferred type system that I guess was impossible to get working. And then I've heard rumblings over the year, this past year, that there was something being worked on as a type system goes. But um, maybe they'll come out with something that's awesome that I won't have an issue with. But I. If it's anything like Swift's, then no, thank you. Yeah, I think uh, so. Coming from Java, you know, obviously one of the things I really liked about it was the ability to refactor stuff quickly because you could make a change and it would bleed all over the place, and you go through and just clean up the the stuff that you changed. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I think you know, Elixir is getting better at, at a lot of that. Um, one of the one of the things that you know we we, uh, Jason and I had talked a lot about uh, is uh, is uh, nil creep and the idea of of uh, maps and you know if you get the if you get the key wrong in a struct, um, it's just gonna give you you'll have a nil dropped in your code wherever. Um, and the the recent changes, I want to say one dot eleven, where it it you know it understands that better and it'll it'll warn you. If you know, if in if in the head of your uh, function you've got your pattern matching against a struct, and then later you use that object and you hit a key that isn't part of that struct, it'll let you know. Are you referring to like the the improved errors that are coming out of Erlang? Um, I think Jose tweeted about it last week. Or no, no, that, that's that's a different that's a different cool thing. Okay. Which is its own its own nice thing. But yeah, no, this this is this is understanding the compiler understanding or or determining that something is a struct and then. You know, later on in that same piece of code, if you try to use uh, a field that isn't on that struct, it'll warn you. 
Um, it'll it'll so give you me, that warning at, at compile time, right? At compile time, right? Exactly. Oh, okay, okay. So, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Awesome. So that so that sort of stuff is good. And and honestly, you know, um, Chris isn't here, so I can I can uh, you know I can give <laughs> one side of the argument. Um, Dialyzer does di Dialyzer does for me what what I what I liked in 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 uh, Java, which is I make a change and you know somewhere. You know that somewhere I hadn't touched in in months a different, completely different file that was was expecting something. Now it's going to say, "Hey, actually, you know, this is wrong." What and, editor and, are you using? Uh, VS Code. Really, I've never gotten it to work. Like I, I mean, I, I've gotten it to work because I've written dialyzer code and spec'd up some of my own libraries. But it most, especially if I pull in someone else's repo, like rebuilding the, it always like the. What, what tab is it in VS Code? Hold on. There's like one tab that's always broken. It's like the problems tab. Like in the problems tab, there's always like 15 problems and they're all dialyzer type problems. Well, yeah, well that's that's the thing is so, you know, the, the and this is, this is, this is the conversation we have, we have pretty, pretty regularly here is. Um, I haven't been here for a I, while, so. Yeah, well, <laughs> so di dialyzer, um, yeah, there's, there's frequent Slack, uh, you know, Back and forth. Uh, Dialyzer has an overhead to use it, and you if you if you can learn how to use it and learn how to interpret it because it's not clear. It's not you know. Oftentimes it'll say something but mean something completely different. If you learn how to do that, it's helpful. Um, and for you know, so. Uh, you know, Chris, Chris will, uh, doesn't doesn't feel like that overhead is worth it, and the, and it isn't I think for him because he's he writes code. He I think the better the the better you are at Elixir, and the more the more the more the better you are at being able to write good code the first time, the less helpful Dialyzer is. It just kind of gets in the way and, and is annoying. But if you're new to it, um. You know, I think there's there's a lot more value in having those guardrails to say, hey, you know, this what you're trying to do is is you, you know this isn't going to work. Yeah, I'm 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 sympathetic to that argument because I am getting the benefit of the type system in Swift through Xcode, and like it is warning me that these return types are expected. Like, do this, and the static analysis tools are interesting because it can suggest fixes. Mm -hmm. um, it's like it's like 50 50 on whether or not the fix makes the code look horrible um yeah. but i think that if the if the language wasn't strongly typed some of these things wouldn't be necessary in the first place and i i i, I mean yeah. I, I understand why swift is strongly typed because apple wants to reduce all likelihood of runtime errors on their platform and that's part of their intended user experience like i totally get that um it's just, uh, I think, for uh, I think for specifically what I'm doing, and if this was the experience that I would have writing Elixir all the time, because also the, the amount of verbosity of the code that you have to end up writing is, like for example, I, I took a Elixir function that was probably like three or four lines of code, and in Swift it ends up being about twenty lines of code, and just all this additional ceremony and you know. Um, you know, stuff you have to write on top of it um, that just to support the type system that feels um, uh, just feels like I'm going through the motions just to satisfy the editor at times more than, you know, just getting my thing done. I know with, so I know with there's it's a little bit of double edged sword there because I remember, at least I remember with Java, yeah, there was more boilerplate you had to write, but the editor could figure it out most of the time. So if you're like, right. you know, if you if you if you want a new new field, you you just access it and it's like, hey, this doesn't exist. Do you want to create it? Click and it's it's done. So it's what what it sounds like is you've got you got two 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 options. You got strongly typed languages like Swift that have to work their way towards the center by giving you the you know the the NEs and the and the the those sort of things. And you have mm -hmm. this the weekly type systems that have things like dialyzer that bring you more towards the center so like it's you know either so one you're, you're you're shifting i uh i'm probably 
speaking out of turn here like most times, but um, I, I did talk to Sean Moriarty, who is um, uh, writing an X along with Joe Day. Um, I chatted with him briefly about, as I kind of posed this question to him, like, can uh, NX or the higher level abstraction that he's currently working on be used um, for code hinting and code suggestions and error checking and spent like you know, some sort of uh, uh, static analysis of your Elixir code? And at first, it's like, no, nah, I don't do that. That's possible. And then he came back to me a week later and he it kind of like it seemed like he was eating at his head and he started looking into it and um he i he did a little bit of research on it he said that you know this may be possible and maybe i i don't want well, i don't want to put that job on his shoulders but it'd be really nice if if that could work incorporating kind of the results of the nx project back into the elixir language server um in order to get some of that code hinting and, and um, suggestions and analysis uh, without having to go through all of the hoops of, you know, setting up your types and such. I haven't done a lot of work in strongly typed languages. I've, I've done a little bit of Rust kind of on the side for learning purposes. I got as far as publishing a crate. Um, and um, I mean, the, 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 one of the things I thought was cool about it was if, like, for example, if you do like a, a file open call and then you match on the result of that, the compiler knows that there can be a success or a, or a failure from return from that. And so if you just like match and only handle the success case, you can't compile. It's like you have to handle the failure case. Oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah, they don't have that in Swift. Um, yeah. It's more so, like Matt, you, you kind of set your type to your variable, and uh, I guess it'd be kind of that's actually pretty advanced uh, code analysis. Then, I mean, I assume that happens when you compile the code. It's not in the editor, right? It's yeah, it's okay. it's. So uh, I, for that, for something like that, that seems like a it, it makes sense because it's like the difference between you know expected versus unexpected error conditions, you know, like mm. it is expected that sometimes the file isn't going to be there and you should deal with that. Um, but yeah, when I'm using dialyzer, I feel, I feel kind of two ways about it. Like I, I, I like it in theory and I, and I think it can give good um, help, you know, and, and avoiding bugs. It does feel like a lot of work. And my main beef is just that the error messengers error messages are so confusing and inscrutable that it's like, basically a lot of times I'm just like, well, something is wrong. <laughs> and so yeah. all I know is something is wrong and I have to do something about it and I'll have to like stare at it until I figure that out. That's been my experience too, that I, I, I for a while I tried to do, like uh, drive my code with the specs in, in dialyzer and I would just get bogged down in esoteric uh, error messages that would just take a while. And I guess that's really just an experience thing. If you do it enough, I guess you get past it. Um, but I ultimately just really started using Dialyzer for the annotation of the uh, documentation rather than kind of driving my um, uh, code quality. I've actually uh, moved away from specs for the most part. And, and the the benefits I've I've had from dialyzer have actually been the, the things that it picks up even without specs are generally most of the way there. And you're mm -hmm. right if you, you know if you start putting specs on everything that that's something you have to maintain. And you get one of those wrong, and you get some weird crazy message that really just ends up being you know the spec wasn't right. Um, so I've actually like I said uh, you know I don't actually put specs on most of the stuff if. If there's an issue or there's something that that you know uh, uh, dialyzer message that I can't figure out, I might I'll actually put specs on it to say what I assume that it's going to be, and then it'll tell me whether that's right or wrong. But um, yeah, I think I think I think a lot of the confusing error messages and a lot of the frustration is ends up being uh, incorrect spec, and so uh, that could yeah that that's that's a fair. That is, yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I'm, I'm not claiming to be dialyzer expert. And so it's very likely that in many cases I wasn't using it properly. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, for me, I found it just, just not, not doing them in most cases. You know, 
I got a behavior or something where, you know, I've got callbacks and, and whatever, where I, you need to, you know, um, and maybe at boundaries, so, you know, where, where it's very clear. Uh, but yeah, specs everywhere turns into dialyzer blood everywhere. There's just, you get errors, you get errors all over. And so that, you know, um, dialyzer is smart. It, it, it can tell when there's a dialyzer is always right. It's just not always clear as to what the problem is. It's right, but it's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. 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 So. Yeah. There was a talk that Gary Bernhardt gave at one point called Ideology, where he 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 talked about like static typing people versus test driven people, and like you know they each kind of think that that this is a panacea, and like um, you know static typing is he he said it's really cool for making certain undefined behaviors impossible. Like if you're supposed to pass a number, you can't pass a string, and you're not going to have an error there. Yeah. Um, but you can pass a number that's too big or too small, probably, and um, so, so there's like, there's, there's things that it can constrain and things that it can't constrain. I, I got a, I, I got a question for each of you. What percentage of your code that you're writing are you guys TDDing? Uh, pretty small. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm yeah, the same it, way. I, I mean, for, I think when I was in my career, as I drank the Kool-Aid on TDD, I was, you know, somewhere between junior and mid, and especially like heading, you know, definitely in the, the meaty part of the mid curve. I was, I got a TDD everything right away, but it's, uh, uh, I probably, it's gonna be well below 25% of my code that I TDD. Yeah, I, I would say the same. Uh, I think I think the times when I break out test-driven development or or even sometimes testing after the fact, but just testing very thoroughly is when I'm writing a piece of code that I feel is tricky. Like, I'm not sure I'm going to get this right. Um, so for example, I wrote a, I wrote some code on a, on a, on a client project where um, there's a bunch of timings that I wanted to display in a little SVG graph, kind of like the, um, if you looked in the, the Chrome inspector where it shows requests and how long they took. And so mm -hmm. each, bar needs to be displayed at the correct length and you don't want to put like one bar per per row because you know it'd be really tall so you want to sort of like pack them in as densely as you can so i wanted to render an svg like that and i felt like that code was going to be tricky to write in terms of like yeah. deciding how long should each thing be and what row should it be on so mm -hmm. i tdd'd that and and that helped me make sure that i was getting that right and it turned out turned out to work well but I yeah, I find it in, in a lot of cases, like when I'm exploring the model of the application or the library, I don't even know what I want, like the return values of these functions to be yet. But I have a general concept on it. And so like, I feel like spiking things out and playing the code that way for me is a lot more performant. And it, you know, the, the kind of practitioners of TDD will come back and say like, oh, and then you come back and write the test and now you're just testing, like their tests are asserting potential bugs in the code. I mean, I have a hard time buying that argument after programming for 20 years. I think that there are, you know, unless you're writing like hundred line functions, something with like all these, you know, weird, uh, you know, just branching logic in it. Um, I think that testing TDD is another tool that you can have at your disposal to help you write good code. It isn't the tool, it's not the only tool. Um, and that's where I think in the past, maybe eight or nine years is where I've kind of come to land on, on that subject. Yeah, I heard a good conversation at one point where they were talking about, um, you know, basically the purpose of testing and, and any other technique is to increase your confidence that your code is doing the right thing. And so on on code where I know like this is this is easy, I don't feel like I have to test this real hard. Um, but then, you know, when, I, when I'm doing something that I feel is kind of like, I'm not sure I'm gonna do this right, then I double down on whatever I can do to give it more correctness guarantees. Yeah, yeah. I think integration tests, behavioral tests that are testing multiple systems in combination are probably good areas that um, you should probably spend a bit more time on your tests, but unit tests on individual functions, especially ones that are otherwise covered by integration tests are by large unnecessary.
ends up being more to maintain that. that oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, this is my whole rant against like, we were talking about, you know, type specs, but like testing specs, the R spec from Ruby world. And I know that there's a spec implementation for Elixir, but I don't know what it is, but it, these like engineers love complexity. I'm, I'm convinced. And they like, you know, yeah. drying up their code and trying to reduce and reuse everything. And the, the, the nail in the cough, coffin, I think, is when you start to apply those things to your test suite. And now you start to try to get too clever. And you're going to start mm -hmm. like, okay, you know, that, that, that test is kind of like this one. And if I just change them both a little bit and then combine them, and like, before you know, you have like one like macro for your entire test suite. <laughs> and it's, it's a nightmare for anyone else coming in to use it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a, uh, I mean, that's always something that I've driven at Dockyard when I was running the engineering team was uh, keep it as simple as possible. You know, the, anytime you feel like it's getting too complex and if, like, if you have to, if you, if you go back to the code after a week later and you have to relearn what it was you were doing a week ago, like that's a problem. We had, yeah. There was a we had a recent client that uh, you know our standup every uh, whenever we had the standup I'd always ask the question, what did we do with this client today to reduce complexity? And it was a serious question, and, and it, it got people thinking like you know it, there's yeah. there's there's a there's a super fun, interesting, complex way of solving this problem, but there's also a nice and easy way that isn't as fun but can be done and much easier to maintain, be maintained. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. And that fun, that fun, complex problem <laughs> is going to probably impress like three people, right? right. Do, do, <laughs> do those on your, do those on your Dockyard Fridays. Yeah, and, and, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Yep. Well, this is probably a good place for us to wrap up. So, right. uh, if anybody's watching, thanks for joining us. Smash like and subscribe. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah, do. That's all the, you know, the stupid stuff all the YouTubers say. Yeah, tell all your friends <laughs> that they need yeah. to like channel. <laughs> yeah, we got to give us money. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, this was fun. Thanks, guys. All right. Thanks. See ya.